is the Powerful Nonsense Podcast. Learn everything you need to know to make a living outside the 9 to 5 grind and crush it at life. You'll learn from inspirational guests and in-depth discussions. Go from employee to entrepreneur and start creating a life you love and still pay the bills. So here are your hosts, Wayne Ingram and Jem Yildiz. Let's get on with the show! This podcast is sponsored by the University of Northampton, the first UK university to be awarded the Ashoka U Changemaker Campus status in recognition for their commitment to social entrepreneurship. Yo, 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 Powerful Nonsenses. What's going down? Welcome to episode 101. Yes. Of the Powerful Nonsense podcast and YouTube show. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, if you missed episode 100, then, I mean, where were you, first of all? Yeah. Milestone episode. It was. Uh, but we have made the decision to shake things up a little bit and start putting our podcast out on YouTube as a video podcast. So not just like album art with sound. Makes sense seeing as you I have a bit of a... You can see our pretty faces. Does make sense seeing as I have a bit of a fancy camera as well. Well, yeah. And you're a video content producer. So what were we thinking? It's got to be done. So uh, we're here on YouTube. If you're listening to the podcast and you want to watch us on YouTube, head on over there. Search Powerful Nonsense. You'll find us. Um, yeah, and you can start watching us. But there is a bit of a caveat for this episode, because this episode was actually... We've got an interview with... Dundee. Dundee. Oka. Oka Wali. <laughs> That's Oka. why I looked at you. Because I don't want to be offensive by just saying his first name, but then I don't know how to pronounce his second name. I'm sorry, Dundee. It's, I think it is like Okawali or something Okawale. like that. I'm so sorry. That's awful. Horrendous behaviour <laughs> on both of us. I edit that out or not. <laughs> I feel awful. Anyway. <coughs> so we have an interview with Tunde. Mm-hmm. Okawali. <laughs> and, uh, but this interview was recorded before we decided and had made a firm decision that we were going video. I think we made the decision on episode 100 to do video, didn't we? <laughs> I think we did, yeah. So uh, for this episode, when the interview kicks in, we're going to put together some graphic. Unfortunately, we're going to disappear. It will disappear, and you'll just hear our voices. But it does mean that if you are watching us on YouTube, you can just kind of carry on doing your work, and we'll still be playing, and you won't yeah. miss anything. So yeah. win-win. It's all good. Silver lining and all that. But great interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect coming into this interview. I don't think you usually know what to expect when I just bring somebody well, on. Well, screw it. But no, I literally had no idea what to expect. No, for me, I saw his um, his TEDx talk um, come up on the on my Facebook feed, and I saw it and watched it. I thought, oh, this makes a lot of sense. It was all about like stereotypes, how they sex expectations, what holds people back, limiting beliefs, mm-hmm. and I thought. This sounds like a powerful nonsense guest. <laughs> so I reached out, got him on, and it was a great conversation. I mean, we covered so many different topics from masculinity to limiting beliefs mm-hmm. to um, who you should surround yourself with. It was just loads of different knowledge that he delivered, really. Yeah, it was great. It mm-hmm. blew my mind on a few things, which was, which is always good. And, always he's, like, and he's like a super suave lawyer. Mate. If you haven't seen pictures of him, he's got some swish suits. Mate. <laughs> And and also for the record, some swish ties. Yes, He's and, and some, the handkerchief. And the, I mean, this guy. He needs to hook us up. Look <laughs> at us. <laughs> In fact, I think we talked about his tailor, didn't we? Maybe I think that we was post interview. Yeah. Might have been. Yeah, his custom builds. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a good Mate, interview. I want I want some of his suits and his ties. Anyway, 
Unfortunately, because of the interviews and the audio only, you can't see his suits and ties. <laughs> Troll la 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 la. Just get onto uh, Google, do an image search, and you'll you'll find him. There's loads of good pictures actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we digress. So <laughs> here we are with Tunde Akwale. Tunde, welcome to the Powerful Nonsense Podcast. Thank you for having me. So we want to start things off by asking you. What do you think the difference between success and failure are? Um, I think long-term perspective. So one of the most important things that I've noticed is that it's quite difficult for you to firstly know what success is if you haven't actually defined what it means to you. Mm -hmm. And success is actually relative in the sense that, um, let's say, for example, what I may consider successful, someone else may not. But... Mm -hmm. The starting point is having that clear definition and working towards it. Um, and that's why it goes back to the point of long-term perspective in a sense of being able to visualize things far out in advance and then work backwards towards it. Failure would be not realizing um, that goal that you set for yourself. And the only failure can be stopping in reality. Because if you have the long-term perspective, um, you'll be able to kind of see the end destination, and even if you're unable to reach it immediately, um, you can still work towards it. And I think maybe the best analogy to wrap up the question would be if you're going on a journey, um, you have a map, and the map sets out various different routes for you to actually reach that destination. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be along the route, there's traffic, road delays, um, successes continuing and not stopping until you reach that destination, even if you have to get off at a service break. Failure would be too much traffic. I'm going to turn around and go back home. Mm -hmm. So so what is your destination? Ah, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) Um, To be honest, in a way of not avoiding the question, I'll answer it in the best way I can. Sure. Um, It just really being being the best person I can be, just being the best Tunde, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, as a barrister, a social entrepreneur, um, or just on, an, on a human level, just being the best person I can be, to be honest. Good answer. You do quite a lot of like um, work in the community. Like, where's that care come from? It's the community I come from, to be honest. So it's, it's not necessarily something that it came from anywhere. I just kind of believed that if you were given resources, skills, opportunities, wealth, you have an obligation to mm-hmm. share it with others, to be honest. And all I'm really done is give back to the community that, supported my upbringing so it just kind of felt organically the right thing to do kind of like if you when you leave home you know you don't forget about your parents do you You always have to contribute to them albeit Mm -hmm. they can look after themselves it's kind of like that kevin spacey quote where he says uh if you've been privileged with success it's your duty to send the elevator back down kind of thing yeah i agree definitely and I, i just feel that um a lot of people find it difficult because there's a kind of the feeling of self preservation. And often there's a perception that if you give back too much, you won't, you know, be able to kind of advance yourself. So it's quite, quite interesting because there are lots of people that I've come across and, you know, I've kind of thought, "Mm, maybe this person could do a bit more. But then, you know, again, it goes back to that definition of success and your own definition of giving. People give in different ways. There may be someone that, you know, you may see and you think, wow, this person's doing really well, but they may not necessarily give as much as someone else. But you don't really know what that person does. And giving maybe rather than money, maybe time, maybe you know of resources it could be anything. So I don't know. I just I just I just play my part really. <laughs> I 
Obviously, you speak to probably quite a lot of young people. I see you do a lot of work in school. Like, what are some of the main sort of fears or or problems that maybe you see in those young people or the questions they keep asking you? Hardly any, you know, to be honest. Because I guess I have an advantage. Like, I've been in that situation. So mm. um, I went to the schools that I'm now speaking at. So I have the experience in terms of the culture. Maybe it's different in terms of the fashion trends, the taste, but the issues are still the same. So for me, it's, I don't know, it just feels like being, being back at school myself, albeit being much older. So I don't really have those difficulties. The main questions that people ask me often surround confidence. Right. So, for example, um, a lot of people have aspirations to do well, but they may not necessarily feel that, one, they're entitled to the things they want or that they'll fit in the places that they want to go to. And those are kind of the real issues that people don't necessarily discuss often in schools. Because you can give someone an opportunity, but if they don't have the confidence or don't feel they deserve it, they may not utilise it as much as they could or should do. Yeah, sure. And what do you think um, is kind of not necessarily the main factor, because there are so many factors, but is there one sort of factor when it comes to people's confidence that crops up quite a lot for you? Um, and this is a plug for myself. Um, I talk a lot, <laughs> I'll be honest. I talk a lot about it in my TEDx talk, um, which is about the soft bigotry of low expectations. Mm -hmm. Just in a sense that I've certainly experienced it. There's this soft bigotry where um, institutions and individuals impose limitations on others based on mm -hmm. their social economic background. It could be race. Um, it could be a number of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big issue. So, for example, if you have someone at school who's supposed to be your teacher, mentor or careers advisor saying, well, I know that's what you want to do, but don't you think it'd be much better if you did this? Don't you think it'd be much easier? And it's just that subtle kind of, you know, you're not good enough that kills people's confidence. My little sister had this experience as well when she went to a careers advisor and she was doing science and they were like, oh no, you didn't get high enough grades, probably something you shouldn't pursue and it actually made her drop out of doing the sciences. But do you think there's sort of like a, obviously this is in young people, I think especially are totally real, much more susceptible to these kind of like people pushing their their views and opinions onto you. But is there does there come to a point where actually you start to be able to, I don't know, take sort of control for yourself and be like, you know what, I can actually choose my expectations or, or is it that you have to be around people that help you to, to set those expectations to widen your worldview? There's been research done on it in that if there's someone at home or someone in the school that has positive expectations of a young person, there's a strong correlation which would indicate that that person will do well. So it's a combination. I think it's difficult because people are different. And, you know, things that may damage someone's confidence may not have an impact on someone else's and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a combination of, you know, two things. I do think that ultimately it's down to the individual. However, you know, as a society, as family members, as friends, there is an obligation for us to be positive and be supportive. Mm. What would you say to say like a young person out there who maybe doesn't feel like they have that person in their life yet or they the family there's no one in the family that's like that there's nobody at school how would someone go about finding that person if it is a young person or even an older person they should be that person themselves because the easiest way yeah the easy the easiest way from my experience to attract the things you want mm -hmm. is to actually 
be be the things you want, be have the characteristics, and the likelihood is that you'll attract the people that will be similar to yourselves. Often, mm-hmm. you know, if you're you're quite a negative person, you'll only attract negative people around you. Positive people won't necessarily want to be around you. So it's more a case that if the things that you want aren't necessarily available, you know, create the space, go to the environments where they are, and become the person that you ideally would like to be or be around. Because if you're not that person, why would people necessarily want to be around and be supportive of you? It works both ways. If you're a negative person, it's very difficult for someone to be very positive and supportive of you because it's draining on them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, when you're looking at kind of like your aspirations, I think uh, so many people forget that the self-work is probably one of the most important aspects, I think, to uh, achieving those ambitions. And, And as you say, like making sure that you are uh, the sort of person that identifies with those ambitions, if that makes sense. So if, let's say, you want to be um, a healthy person, it's like, well, what does a healthy person look like? Uh, rather than being like, well, to be healthy, I have to do this. It's kind of taking on that that self-identity. I agree. I agree. And, I, and kind of one of the things that I say to students, which a lot of people scoff at, is, you know, the moment that you believe that you're a barrister or a solicitor, you will be one. Mm-hmm. And the most difficult thing for you to do is to have the confidence that the thing that you want to be, you already are. Mm-hmm. And it kind of sounds, you know, a bit airy-fairy on one level, but on another level, it's, it's not. Because for you to have that confidence, you need to think in a particular way, you need to do things in a particular way. Um, and it's a process. So sometimes, you know, if I say, if you think like this, it will happen straight away. People don't realise how difficult it is to actually think in a particular way. Thinking is one of the most difficult things that people overlook. And I think it all starts with what people think. Yeah, I remember when I finished my degree and I was getting into like, I wanted to get into TV and film and I was going to like a talk at Channel 4 and then you kind of like turn up and you just feel like I so don't fit in here. Everybody here looks like they know everything. They know what they're talking about. They're asking questions and it's it's kind of weird. You kind of like have to question like where do those sort of limiting beliefs come from? limiting beliefs are around you all the time and I just think ultimately it comes back to the point you made earlier about the individual's responsibility you have a choice when faced with any situation you can either be positive or you can be negative ultimately anything that happens to you in life there there's always the choice and it's easier to be negative I don't know why by default it's very easy to be negative someone will come along to you and say something to you and the first thing you'll do is question challenge it you sure that's really true? Someone say, oh, there's a brand new offer. You say, you sure? And I'm not sure whether it's human nature or not, but it's it's easy. So the limiting belief, I genuinely believe, unfortunately, is our default position. I'm not sure where that originated from, but often when you speak to people, the default is, no, I can't do it. It won't happen. And people will find reasons why, okay? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a protective mechanism in relation to the brain, self-preservation. I'm not sure. But... It's something that that's always happens. And the more competitive the sector or industry you're in, the worse it is. Because not only will you have those kind of nagging beliefs floating around in the air, people around you will reinforce them because they'll be negative themselves, you know, or they'll try to keep you down by saying things like, well, no, you won't be able to do that. No, you shouldn't bother. Don't worry, it's not. And it's just something that, unfortunately, culturally has been so embedded that it's become the norm. And I think we need to work on making it the reverse. Yeah, I think there was uh, something I heard from uh, Michael Hyatt 
uh, one thing that Michael Hyatt talked about on one podcast was uh, when you're going through a negative experience, whether that is <clears throat> identity based or whether or not that's um, event based. Uh, one thing that he always tries to do is ask himself what that negative experience actually makes possible. So it's taking that negative and focusing it onto a positive. So as an example, uh, you're running late on the tube and um, because you're stuck at a station, it's easy to get stressed. But uh, if you think, you know, what does this make possible? It's an opportunity to maybe get those emails done on your phone whilst you've got the Wi-Fi connection at the station and, and get loads of that stuff done. But then um, also to another extent, like with yourself, with with your background um, and that limitation of your 2-2 that you got your degree, like that has built this great brand for you um, because you're more identifiable for people. Yeah, yeah, correct. Spot on, spot on. So it's turning negatives essentially into a positive. Mm. And that would be the solution in terms of counteracting the negative beliefs and self-limitations that are floating around. So the way that you deal with them is that you can't avoid them. You'll always have a situation where you're faced with a negative. And as you rightly pointed out, it's how do you then turn it into a positive? Um, it's funny because that's a philosophy... I'm not sure if it's espoused by Napoleon Hill, but certainly something that kind of like underpins all of his writings. So, you know, turning something really bad into something good or looking for the good and bad. Yeah, I think that's a sort of prime example of where you can maybe turn like a label into something that actually is quite positive. Like you say there, like maybe people see you and say, OK, well, he got a 2-2, but he still made it. And I think how do you think that people could actually utilise maybe labels in their favour? I think the way people can utilize labels is by owning the definition of them. So, you know, as you, as pointed out, 2-2 two, two doesn't mean failure, you know. Mm. And in terms of looking at it, it was it is something to this state that people will be like, wow. So despite not necessarily having the best start, you've still been able to go on and accomplish so much. And what happened is that it only becomes relevant if you're able to offset it with something else. So um, one of the things that I say to a lot of students is that, um, I'm not advocating complacency. Instead, I'm saying that, you know, if things don't necessarily work out as you intend them to, don't give up because, like me, it isn't something that can preclude you from, you know, attaining the things you want. That being said, work hard because if you get first, you'll be able to accomplish much more than me. So it's, it's a case where, again, that point that we were discussing earlier, that, you know, if something bad happens, okay, how can we turn it into a, into a positive? But always keep aiming for the best do you think that it can also work the other way do you think that um somebody that has done so well in the academic environment is kind of talked positively about by their peers early in their career have they're the person that everybody goes oh you're gonna go so far do you think it can work the other way in that not necessarily complacency but in terms of that that pressure that everybody's yeah. looking at them, everybody's expecting them to do really well. And do you think there's the potential that that can actually cause increased failure because of the pressure? I'm not sure whether or not it, it, it will increase failure, but I do think that it can immobilize an individual. So there are lots of individuals in my secondary school who on the face of it were like just amazing. They were mm. in the top tier classes, anything they did, Teachers spoke highly of them. Everyone just looked up to them in awe and admiration. And looking at them now, you think, well, what happened? 
One of the things that's neglected when looking at someone's competency is emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence often is what enables you to deal with pressure. So you may have someone that's very bright, very able, but can't deal with pressure. And that may be the determining factor in a sense that immobilizes them and stops them from realizing their potential. And one of the things that happens is that people don't often look at it. People will make an assessment, oh, this person's really good at math, but how does that person cope under pressure? It's a very different skill set, very different skill set, um, and something that you don't necessarily taught. And it's something that often comes from people overcoming adverse personal circumstances that have happened in a social context. You're obviously very confident nowadays, but for our listeners, was there? A, could you give us a, t- a time or a story of when you felt most vulnerable, where you felt actually really unconfident? When I got my tutu, to be honest, yeah, when I got my... When I got my degree, yeah, a very difficult period of time because I'd sought advice from a careers advisor um, from my university, and she said, you'll never be a barrister. You might as well be a legal executive. Yeah, it was quite disheartening, but my family were very supportive. My mum and dad said, no, you can do it. And again, it goes back to the point where I said earlier, if you have a supportive environment, whether it's family, friends, or just one individual, that's often enough to help you kind of persevere and push through. So are you saying with that statistic, uh, obviously you've looked at the, the research far more than, than we have, that all of your peers are saying, no, it's not going to happen for you. But having that one person is enough to change your mindset entirely? Or is it more like what outweighs what? So if you've got all of your peers and one person, is that not going to be enough? Do you need like more people saying yes? Or is it just, is it, that power of that one individual enough to to swing it for a lot of people. It's, it's fact specific. So um, <laughs> there could be someone who has a million people rooting and cheering for them, mm-hmm. but you know, on an individual level, they're unwilling to accept responsibility. And it goes back to the illustration that we discussed earlier about that person that's been told, "Yeah, you're amazing, you're bright, and you're brilliant," but they don't take it any further. Right. And there may be someone who. Ollie has one person whispering in their ear, keep going, keep going. And that's enough for that one person. It's all based on the individual. Right. Um, and that being said, it's not definitive that just because someone believes in you, ultimately, if you don't believe in yourself, it won't happen. Having others believe in you can only contribute, but it's ultimately what you do with it. So mm-hmm. it always it all falls down onto the individual. However, um, there are variables that may assist, you know, in empowering the individual and giving that individual the confidence. Also, uh, again, something that's just popped into my head because I'm like I'm liking this. Uh, this, is all this... They're not popping into your head. The questions are too good. This is script. You guys play. <laughs> no, I swear, honest. <laughs> but thank you. Uh, no, this one's just because I'm really liking this kind of discussion about like the surrounding uh, peers and kind of like what, how that affects the psyche. I wondered if you could maybe touch on. Uh, kind of the opposite effect of the um, you're going to do really, really well and therefore being immobilized to that kind of fuck you mentality of that kind of everybody's telling me I'm going to fail, but screw you guys. I'm going to show you otherwise. Do you experience that a lot? Um, No. <laughs> OK. No, to be honest. No. Again, it's I think a lot of it is just an individual experience, I yeah, guess. Of course. And you know, how, how you internalize things and how you deal with things. Um, for me, the best approach is to be neutral, not to, not to let anything, you know, 
impact me negatively mm-hmm. or not to allow praise to have me, you know, too gassed up. <laughs> to <the extent laughs> yeah. that no, honest, honestly, yeah. to the extent that I feel that, you know, I'm bigger or better than I am. I literally just play my part and, you know, the popular colloquial saying, stay in my lane. So, um, and, 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 and that's, that, that's what I do. So I don't really think, wow, I'm going to do this to prove people wrong. I don't yeah. necessarily think, yes, everyone believes in me, I'm going to do it. It's, it's more a case where this is what I have to do, let me do it. And it may be a case that if there's a particular obstacle that I'm facing, I may need to think in one way because it will help. So, for example, there was a case, a trial I had a few weeks ago, and there were about seven barristers on the case. And everyone said all of the clients were going to be convicted. The evidence was overwhelming. There's no way around it. You know, it's never going to happen. My client got acquitted. Their client got convicted. And my kind of thought process at that time was, okay, that's what you think. And I I had to adopt the approach that you said, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. However, there have been other instances where I've not needed to think that way at all. So it all depends. So, you know, as an individual, we know what motivates us and we know what frame of mind we need to accomplish a particular task. Yeah, I think sometimes that kind of competitiveness is good initially starting out. And I think it's probably a little bit more sort of self-development evolved when you can kind of say, do you know what, I'm just focusing on me. I know what I want out of any situation and I will just keep doing what I need to do without looking out the windows ahead of everybody mm. else around me. There's a stage where you need to do that because if you focus too much on others, that's where the kind of limiting beliefs come in because you may mm-hmm. you'll look at someone and be like, oh my gosh, that person's doing much better than me. Why am I not doing that? And then it kind of takes you off your game. But then on the other hand, you, you may need to do the research because if you're competing competing against someone you may need to know you know what that person's strengths are what a person's weaknesses are so you may need to kind of be focused on what someone else is doing so it all depends on the particular set of circumstances yeah so knowing what that healthy balance is i guess yeah um and you know just doing what's best for you as an individual everyone knows what works for them and i think the problem we have is conformity like people think the opposite of you know courage is cowardice but it's not it's conformity what we do is rather than thinking, we just conform and think, well, this is what someone else is doing, it works for them, it must work for me. And that's Mm. not necessarily the truth. We interrupt this powerful nonsense broadcast because we need to talk about our sponsor of the show, the University of Northampton. Huge thank you to them for supporting the show. Now, the great thing about the University of Northampton, if you haven't checked them out already, is that they are a university that supports students being entrepreneurial, setting up their own business, and specialise in social enterprise, which is business with a social conscience and trying to do good for the world. So if you're thinking you want to get a degree, but also maybe set up your own business afterwards, these guys are the guys to check out. We are also alumni ourselves. We've been there. So we know what it's like. So check them out, northampton.ac.uk. All the information that you could possibly need is on the website. And a huge thank you to them for supporting the show. Also... One more thing. One more thing. <laughs> if you are just starting out with your, your business, there's a problem that you're likely facing, which every entrepreneur faces at the beginning, which is they have to pay the bills. So they've probably got a job, a day job, and then they've also got this business that they're trying to get off the ground, trying to make a profit, which hopefully one day will actually pay their bills for them as well. But there's always this challenge of juggling the time commitment and haven't got enough time and I get home from work and too I'm really, tired, really tired, too tired and I can't put all the time in to get this business going. It's not going anywhere. 
we have decided we're going to give you a little bit of a helping hand with that. We put together a little ebook, which is called How to Make Time for Your Side Hustle, yep. which is available at powerfulnonsense.com. Head on over there, pop in your email address, and we'll ping it right over to you. Free. Free. Free of charge. Free. <laughs> so head on over there and get your copy of How to Make Time for Your Side Hustle. Back to the show. Anytime a young person says to me, you know, I want to be like you, you know, I want to do what you did. I say to him, you're aiming too low. You should be, you know, <laughs> attempting to exceed what I've accomplished. No, no. It's something that's said in, in jest. But one thing that I've noticed is that there are a lot of people that want to have this kind of monopoly of power and don't want, you know, the next generation to supersede their accomplishments. Mm. And it's kind of backwards. Like, historically, if you look at, you know, the ancient Greeks... Their whole objective was to ensure that the, gen- the next generation was much better. And that should kind of be the objective. So it's more a case of, you know, when we're speaking to young people, it's like, okay, this is what's already been happened. How are you going to leave a legacy greater than what already exists? So someone else will come and set the bar even higher. So it's supposed to be constantly raising the bar, the opposite of limbo. Mm. But instead, what we're doing, the bar just keeps lowering. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think that is? The acceptance of mediocrity, to be honest. You know, mm-hmm. just doing enough is okay. You know, there isn't really a culture of excellence in a sense that, you know, if you do enough, you get through. So, for example, the education system. Um, what does a B mean? What does an A mean? You know, fair enough, you've got various different grades, but, you know, one mark is the difference between an A and a B. And, you know, in many instances, people just want to pass. And if you pass on a piece of paper, it just says, okay, person's passed, person's got... But it doesn't really accurately reflect a particular level it doesn't even mean that a person has a sufficient understanding of what they've studied it just means they've passed the test it doesn't show any passion it just means that you may have crammed revised you answered specific questions but do you have an understanding of what you've learned that is the real issue and, and how do you think we can kind of tackle that mass mediocrity by promoting excellence you know championing individuals that you know are doing good things mm-hmm. um, and that have a passion that's greater than just passing and being enough. It's doing more than enough, going the extra mile. Mm-hmm. People are willing to do more than enough. You ask someone to do something, they're going to do the bare minimum. Whereas historically, um, and certainly when I was growing up, that wasn't the case. People would, were very proud about everything they did. It doesn't matter how small the task was. Certainly when I was going to school, and I'm not sure if it's, well, it certainly isn't the case anymore, there was an issue about how long your tie was, presentation, your shoes being clean. It was just a very different culture, mm. very different culture. And I'm not even that old. <laughs> <laughs> just to play uh, devil's advocate a little bit, yeah. what is the difference between promoting excellence and kind of playing up to this um, overnight success, celebrity culture, society that we're in danger of becoming absorbed by we already are absorbed by it we already are absorbed by it and mm-hmm. and, and the problem that we have is that that's the reason why um we have this culture of mediocrity is because there's a focus on the end product as opposed to the process mm-hmm. so everyone sees the end product and everyone's like oh my gosh i want that i want that i want that i want that but people don't really have a full understanding of the process right People don't know how hard certain individuals have worked to be in a position that they're in. And you can pick any celebrity, entertainer, or professional, and they haven't accomplished the things that they have overnight. But that isn't what's 
sold or promoted. Absolutely, yeah. It's quite funny, so, actually. This kind of really plays in. I was watching that documentary you did, um, Trap Town. There was the young guys, and they were just like saying, well, I think you mentioned to one of them that, oh, you could just get a job. You could just get out of this sort of rut that you're in. And it was kind of like, yeah, but I'm never going to make the kind of money I can make in one week. And it was like, well, you could eventually, but you'd have to then put that long-term hard work in first. And I think that's what people see. They see that success. And if they can't get it quickly, again, it becomes immobilizing in that you think, well, if I can't get that now, I'll just settle for what I've got. And then it kind of, so if we do kind of, like you say, if we do promote this kind of culture of excellence or getting people um, really going for what they've got, then suddenly you're going to get a lot of people pushing and then you're going to get a lot of people who are looking at these guys who are going far ahead and they're going to, that might actually immobilize a lot of them because they'll be like, well, I can never catch up. I can never get to that level. They're already gone. But again, it all goes back to the comparison being the cause of all unhappiness because the point isn't necessarily about you comparing yourself to someone who you perceive has made it. It's about identifying what it means to you to make it and what you need to do to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you so see that that shouldn't just come into play. The issue that we have is that we have a society of like get rich or die trying. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's reinforced by this whole credit culture where, you know, you can't afford something, but you can still have access to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that was very da- that's very dangerous in a sense that people are living lifestyles that they can't afford. And what happens is that people then feel the need to compete, which then creates a culture of individuals that are living lifestyles that they can't afford. They get trapped trying to pay off that lifestyle. If people had an appreciation and a respect for the process, things would be much different. Instead, people look at the end product. They want that. They aim for it without having, you know, an appreciation for what it actually means and what it will entail for them to have it. If someone says they want something and they're neglecting the process, in reality, they can't really want the thing that they say they want. Mm -hmm. And the best illustration of that is, let's say, for example, now, you say, I want to buy a house. Right. Um, you're going to have to know what the process is for you to acquire the house. You just simply say, I want a house. I'm going to get a house. Isn't never going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if that the attitude that young people have towards success, whether it's you know in the profession, entertainment, et cetera, mm-hmm. then they don't really want it. And they haven't, like, it's not, you're right. They're not really aiming at all. They're not doing anything. It's just a wish mm-hmm. or a want, but it's not really a goal. You must see, um, obviously, you do a lot of these talks to young lawyers, young barristers. Would you come across a lot of like young people who actually maybe you feel are in it for the wrong reason? No, I just think that I come across a lot of young people who don't have a don't fully appreciate the process and maybe unsure as to whether or not it's something they really want to do. Mm-hmm. So to an extent, maybe the wrong reasons, but I think that it goes back to conformity friends, parents are doing it or telling them to do it, okay, they have to do it too. You can see it's apparent because you'll ask questions. Okay, what do you want to do? And you'll get very vague, non-specific answers. Mm-hmm. And you know. Because when someone knows what they want, they're very specific. Mm. Very specific. And it becomes much easier for them to to realize what they want. And again, back to the kind of map example, um, if, for example, I was arranging to meet the two of you at the Starbucks on High Holborn, mm-hmm. I got out of the train station at Holborn and I asked someone, I need to get to a coffee shop. The person wouldn't be able to assist me in relation to the specific coffee shop I need to go because there are probably seven in close proximity to the train station. Right. However, the more specific I can be, 
if, for example, I could say, oh, it's the one on High Holborn, there may be four there. If I could then say, oh, it's Starbucks. And that's the same thing in terms of the career process. If someone can say, well, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a lawyer in the city, I want to be a lawyer practicing commercial real estate, I want to be a lawyer working for this firm, it becomes much easier in terms of giving them the careers advice and for them to identify opportunities and initiatives that they should be actually doing. In many instances, the more specific someone is about what they want to do, they end up doing it inevitably and it becomes quite clear in the dialogue. And people are very vague and general. That's the indication to me that they're in it for, quote unquote, the, un- the wrong reasons or they're not really sure. You um, said that you do work with a charity called um, Boyhood to Manhood. I'd just like to find out a little bit yeah. about that because me and Wayne find ourselves having a lot of discussions like masculinity and I was just wondering whether that sort of plays into that. Yeah, that that charity, one of the best things that, that ever happened to me, um, it was an organisation still in existence that helped young men that got excluded from school and it reintegrated them back into mainstream education. So based in South London, um, had a sister branch in Birmingham and it was really good because it dealt with concepts such as responsibility, you know, masculinity. And for me... My involvement wasn't necessarily being one of the beneficiaries in a sense that um, I did any of the, the projects, but I trained the young men there. So that was kind of my first types of experience to doing community outreach work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a charity that supported me. You know, I didn't have enough money to do the bar course and they part funded me. So um, they made me a director initially and then I became a trustee before I stood down and focused on the urban lawyer's work. But that was perhaps like the best illustration of an organization that was committed to helping the community on every level. So helping those that wanted to do better for themselves on a level so they could give back more and helping those that really needed help. So yeah, I've got, you know, nothing but positivity. (laughs) (laughs) And, and what do you think then is, um, the biggest challenge for a young man becoming a man? Identity. Yeah, could you break that down? Yeah, like, so for example, like, what is a man? Who are you? What does it mean to be a man? Um, What are your responsibilities? Um, Because you have so many conflicting images, theories, Mm -hmm. uh, cultural norms associated with masculinity. It's quite difficult growing up, you know? Um, Are you allowed to be emotional? You know, are you supposed to speak in a particular way? Are you supposed to do particular things? You know, are you supposed to, you know, think in a particular way? So it's quite tricky. And it's something that I see a lot with individuals that I end up representing. You know, just just that struggle in a sense of, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Is it, are you supposed to be, you know, a provider? And if so, does that mean by any means necessary? You know, to what extent? Are you supposed to show your emotions? And if so, how are you supposed to show them? Are you supposed to show them with violence, empathy, sympathy? And I I spoke at the Being a Man Festival at the South Bank Centre latter part of last year. And again, it was one of the big issues in the sense of, you know, this concept of masculinity. What does it actually mean? And, you know, what impact does it have? Like, what's the socialisation process? Mm. And it's apparent that, there are different types because um, there is a big issue, particularly with, you know, young black men. Um, There's been a report 
or there's been a launch of an inquiry into relation to the criminal justice system and its treatment and whether or not institutions play a role in defining the roles of masculinity for particular groups in society mm. and if so what so it's, it's it's very complicated but it's definitely identity the hardest thing is you know working out who you are and you know how you fit in because a lot of people don't feel they fit in and if yeah. you don't fit in that's kind of a destructive path in and by itself in relation to the kind of things that you may choose to do or not do yeah absolutely i, I actually saw something really interesting the other day at the day job um i work at a hotel and there's a um young mum staying there whilst there's um work being done on their house um, and she's staying there with her two sons, uh, one of which is about seven years old. And her husband is spending most of the time staying at their home. And um, one morning I came down to see that the seven-year-old boy was kind of making sure that before the mum had come down, that all of the stuff was on her breakfast table ready to go. And I thought, oh, that's really, really kind of well-behaved boy. And then I overheard conversation from the mom saying to the breakfast waitress that the dad had said, look, whilst I'm not there, whilst you're staying at the hotel, you're the man of the house. And um, the mom said to the breakfast waitress, you know, and he's taking that incredibly seriously. The fact that he's been told he's now the man of the family um, whilst his dad's not there. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting that even a seven-year-old boy, as soon as somebody says, right, you're a man now, how empowering that is for the seven-year-old. Yeah, but then it's also it's also, you know, quite powerful in the sense that the illustration that you've just provided, in itself, demonstrates how the young person's identified the roles of being a man. Mm-hmm. You know, and doing those specific things for for his mum. Mm. So it's just quite interesting in the sense that not only is it empowering, but it also confers with it certain perceived roles and responsibilities. What does it mean to you to be a man? Good question. I think that it's a personal thing. I don't think there's um, an objective answer. Because if, for example, um, you have a situation, as you've described, where you have a young boy who's told by, you know, his, his dad, that, well, he's the man when daddy's not around. On a subjective level, to the young boy, he's a man. Because, you know, he may ensure that, you know, his mum has certain things and that she's okay but on an objective level, to an outsider, because of his age, you'd be like, well, no, he's not. So one of the kind of key things is that it's a combination of emotional intelligence and integrity. And despite that young... And again, I don't know this young person. Mm-hmm. I saw this an assumption I'm making, is that his response to certain things based on his age, unlikely to be as mature as someone you know, who's older. And again, it's just that ability, you know, to have that level of emotional intelligence to deal with pressure and respond appropriately and to actually know who you are. So ultimately, you know, being a man, being a woman is a combination of emotional intelligence, awareness of who you are, what you are, and an understanding, you know, of your own individual role and goal expectations. And I, I think that that's the best answer because I think on a personal level, it's very different. To someone else, it could be being a man is, you know, ensuring that my family has something to be, being a provider, 
someone else, he maybe will know. It's just, you know, making sure my family knows I love them. Mm. You know, someone else could be being there because that's something they didn't experience. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very personal, personal thing. But I think on an objective level, it's definitely about emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Good answer. Yeah, really good. Wow. I mean, this has been great, but we're going to have to start wrapping up, unfortunately. But this no has problem. been so good. Um, but we've got two questions that we ask every guest that we get onto the show. Is that your way of compelling me to answer the questions? Basically, <laughs> yeah. some pressure. You've got you. no it's choice. You've got to answer it. Everybody I'm... else does. <laughs> <laughs> so the show's called Powerful Nonsense. So the two questions are, what's the most powerful piece of advice you've ever been given? And conversely, what's the biggest load of nonsense you've ever heard? Most powerful piece of advice... I've had so many, to be honest. So I wouldn't be able to single one piece out, but I'll say the one that I use very frequently mm -hmm. and that things don't happen quickly, but they do happen suddenly. Um, and nice. to contextualize that, it's to deal with accomplishment mm -hmm. and things that happen in your life. And the best illustration, just in relation to, to my journey, is you think of planting a seed into the ground you know, you water the seed and on the surface, nothing's happening. And you can do, you can continue this process for weeks, months. And people look at you like you're weird. You know, you may even talk, you may even talk to the soil. People think, oh, what's going on? And that hard work, that effort is being unnoticed on a superficial level, mm -hmm. you know. However, the foundation's being laid. And what people neglect, and it goes back to our point about the process, is that the process is all about laying the foundation. And it's something that's not necessarily apparent to everyone. That's why people have this idea of overnight success. Mm. Overnight success is the first time that seed sprouts and you see the first leaf. People haven't seen the process, the fact that you'd gone out during the seasons, been watering, you know, ensuring that the ground was fertile, just to that moment could happen. But people have only seen that part and been like, wow, we want mm. that too. And what happens is people put seeds in the ground and they don't have the patience to appreciate that things don't happen quickly, but they do happen suddenly. And they need to respect the process and work hard to ensure that it does happen. And it goes back to your point about people aiming without really aiming, dropping seeds into the ground and coming back, hoping that, you know, a plant's going to grow. Forgetting that, you know, the plant needs to be watered. The ground needs to be nurtured. And there's a gestation period for things to happen. So it's not going to happen straight away. That's great. That's the best piece of advice. Um, the biggest piece of nonsense, there's been so... I ignore it all, to be honest. I, <laughs> I hear so much nonsense all the time. Maybe, 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 maybe one of the things that I heard in Trap Town, in the sense that I can't do it, it's too hard, you know, it, it's quicker for me to make money this way, the government don't want us to succeed, things like that. Mm -hmm. I'm stuck in the system. The kind, the kind, the kind of blame culture. Yeah. You know, I, I personally think that we need to be more solution orientated and that, you know, irrespective of problems that people identify, focusing on the problems and complaining about them won't actually adequately address them. Be solution orientated. So my, my piece of nonsense that I've heard is, you know, an unwillingness to accept responsibility for your actions by saying it's too hard, it's too difficult, no one's going to give me a chance, it's because I'm black, it's because I'm too young, it's because I live in this environment. That's nonsense. <laughs> Good stuff. Brilliant. Really like Amazing. So I was just wondering if you could give us maybe a couple of books that you think have been really powerful for you and, and why you think maybe young people uh, should pick them up. 
So there's a purpose-driven life by Rick Warren. Very good book, just in relation to identifying on an individual level what your purpose or role is, Mm -hmm. you know, during your time here on Earth. There's the autobiography of a yogi. Love that book. Um, And that Mm -hmm. book's about a yogi's journey to self-enlightenment. So from a young age, just how this individual became, you know, self-enlightened. I love that book too. I like The Master Key System by Charles Hannell. And that's a book that's focused on how how you think and changing the way you think. Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. What else is the Cyber Cybernetics, Maxwell Schwartz of memory. So I've been a long time since I read that book. The Alchemist, Paolo Coelho. What am I reading at the moment? The Old Manuscript by Lars Mars. The Unfamished Road um, by Ben Okri. Things Fall Apart. I like that book by Chinwa Chibe. Yeah. That, That's a nice yeah, lot of books. A great <laughs> list. Get people um, reading those and, books. And, 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 and they're all different because they just help you think. Mm-hmm. They just help you think. Mm-hmm. So good books in the sense of just realizing how little you think. Mm-hmm. One last thing I was just going to say, obviously you might have some of your urban lawyers out there listening. What would you like to say to them? We've got two events coming up. We've got an event tonight at BLP um, Law Firm. And we've got an event on the 27th of February at BPP Law School at Waterloo. Details are on Eventbrite. Um, it's the Urban Lawyers Careers Conference. If you're interested in becoming a barrister or solicitor or just entering a legal profession, it's an event you should attend. There'll be lords, judges, individuals that work within the legal sector offering advice from CV tips, interview skills, um, there'll be a breakfast and lunch buffet provided, and it's only £7.50. Amazing. And how can people find you, Tunde? Um, I'm on I'm a social media junkie, so I'm on most social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, same for Urban Lawyers. So if you need any information about the events I've mentioned, I've been tweeting them nonstop for the last few days, so apologies for spanning your timelines. Um, <laughs> but... That's where we can be found. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tunde. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great. No problem. We'll see you soon. Take care, mate. All right. So there we have it. Yep. Another great interview. That was good fun. Only found on Powerful Nonsense. And now I've got a massive book list after you listed off about (laughs) how many books? Ten books? Loads of books. All the books. The books are good. Um, and if you want to check out those books, we have put them in the show notes. You can check them out at uh, powerfulnonsense.com forward slash 101 for episode 101. You sound like those bloody telephone people. <laughs> really annoying. Sponsored by Power Jam. Uh, yeah, so powerfulnonsense.com forward slash 101 for the show notes and resource list. Um, also do us a massive massive favor because we've just launched launched the youtube channel so please if you're enjoying what we're doing hit that subscribe button and you can get our pretty faces every time we put out a video if you want that <laughs> please we'd, we'd, we'd love it so thanks very much for listening thanks very much to tunde for joining us for an interview and we will catch you next time see you later